Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As we continue to reopen America, there's some news that we did not want to hear. Several states have seen an increase of coronavirus cases and hospitalizations following Memorial Day. And some of the data from the states suggests that the increases are not just due to more testing. What's more concerning is that some of the states are nearing hospital bed capacity. For more on how the numbers are going up, we'll speak to Jacqueline Dupree. She keeps track of the coronavirus numbers for the Washington Post. We started seeing this really since kind of the beginning of June. We tend to track their average new case numbers over a seven-day period because the numbers are very noisy. So we have seen that the average of seven days worth of new cases have started just going up almost every day in states like North Carolina and South Carolina and Arizona and even Puerto Rico and some unexpected places like Utah and even Oregon. And so because the numbers are noisy, it was something to just kind of keep an eye on at first. But, you know, a sustained number of daily increases in an average definitely is getting our attention. And how do we know that these cases aren't just because of the increase of testing? Where do the numbers show that, you know, it's increased transmission of it? Some states like Utah are nice enough to tell us that. Um, there was a tweet from Utah Coalition that's handling all this saying the cases are on the rise here and it's not because of increased testing or a single outbreak. The numbers, as I think anyone who's been paying attention for the past few months, it is as much art as science because states report so differently in so many different ways. Right. So for me, watching sustained day after day increases when we have been being told for a while that really testing is on the rise. So the first thing was to watch, obviously, these numbers keep going up and up. And then to kind of tie into the next part, it was like, well, so are hospitalizations starting to go up in any of these states? Because that kind of gets you past the number of, is this just increased testing right. versus, wow, this is clearly an increase in the number of people who are sick enough to be hospitalized compared to a few weeks ago. So that's what we've really seen, again, in Arizona and Texas and the Carolinas in particular, uh, some pretty clear increases in hospitalizations over the past couple of weeks. And I like the way you put it, the numbers are noisy when it comes to the cases because of the way states track them and count them and probable cases, it does get very messy. So a lot of people do look to hospitalizations as maybe more of a truer marker of the impact, at least on the local health systems that are out there. And a lot of them are starting to get near their bed capacity, which could be a problematic issue if these numbers continue to rise. Let's break down some of the states. Texas has been seeing some increases, 36% increase in new cases since Memorial Day. And their bed capacity is starting to get pretty high as well. Texas has definitely been a state that we've been watching. And in fact, they've reported their numbers again already today. And current hospitalizations have gone up another 100 patients since yesterday. And they're now 
at about a 43% increase in current hospitalizations for COVID patients since Memorial Day. And they are starting to get to the point where they're continuing to have an eye on how crowded their hospitals are. Out of 56,000 staffed hospital beds, they're down to what they say is about 13,600 available beds across the entire state. And Arizona is another state that everyone's watching. And with their numbers that are out today on their website, they actually say that 83% of the inpatient beds across the state are currently in use. And even while their number of cases today went up yet again, they had an increase of another 1,500 new cases today, which is considerably above their seven-day average. Now, even these numbers can be a little, again, noisy because not every hospital reports every day. Sometimes they just don't get a report from a hospital. So even these are just trying to watch trends. But there's a clear trend upward in not only the number of hospitalizations, but the number of beds used as it's getting closer to maximums. And this was the concern, you know, as states were going to start reopening, that we were going to start seeing more cases of it. We've seen all the protests and unrest going on throughout the country, and that's been kind of a two-week thing as well. It could be possible that these numbers could continue to go up. So definitely something to keep an eye out for. As you mentioned, these numbers are so noisy and they just keep moving so fast right now. You know, I think we're just starting to get on to the edge of when the protest numbers would start to come out of the noise because, as they like to say, the case reports You're seeing what was going on in the country one or even two weeks ago. And then hospitalizations can even be another week after that. So I have really just now with this week, I'm really starting to pay attention to the states with the largest number of protests to watch for those numbers, specifically, obviously, Minnesota, but also Washington, watching King County and Georgia, watching the Atlanta area and obviously the District of Columbia. And nothing has popped out just yet, but I would imagine that there will be an increase in cases. I think everybody believes there will be an increase in cases. Jacqueline Dupree. Jacqueline keeps track of all of the coronavirus numbers for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. One of the other top stories, you've heard the rallying cry to defund the police. But while many officials and law enforcement experts disagree with the idea of dismantling police departments, they do say, however, that some of the duties police perform could be better handled by others. The idea of taking funds away from police budgets and redirecting that money into resources that support homeless housing, mental health, addiction, and employment services is gaining steam. For more on where it might make sense to cut police budgets, we'll speak to Kim Hart, City's reporter at Axios. First, I think it's important to understand that a lot of people have different definitions of what the quote-unquote defund the police movement is calling for. I think there are a lot of uh, local officials and law enforcement officials who are pretty alarmed by the call to completely defund or dismantle a police department entirely. What the defund movement is really calling for is taking some money, as you mentioned, from a police department's budget, which uh, some activists feel are very bloated and overly large, 
for the cities that they that they serve and reallocating that to some of the social services like education, housing, mental health, addiction treatment that can actually help reduce crime and get to the root of some of the the problem rather than just policing the symptoms in sometimes an overly aggressive way. So there's alarm about how far the defunding goes, whether it is a complete defunding or a, you know, finding some targeted areas where it may not make sense for law enforcement to be responsible for responding to certain calls and maybe partnering or handing off some of those duties to professionals who might be better equipped to do it. Going back to your point about how much money these police budgets have in Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti said he's going to take $150 million from the LAPD budget to boost funding for other programs. Okay, that's $150 million, but the total police budget is $1.8 billion. So it, it is a, a small amount comparatively there. But what can you do with that money? As you were mentioning, a lot of police have to respond to. And a lot of times it's issues with mental health, things like that. So some of that money can be reallocated to programs for alcohol and drug addiction. And a social worker could be more effective than making an arrest or something like that. Uh, tell us about uh, the mental health aspect of this. There are a lot of community programs, for example, that can, instead of um, you know someone who is a drug addict or who has a real problem with alcoholism, is wandering the streets causing problems. Uh, you know, the, the typical reaction to that is someone calls 911, a police officer comes out, and most likely that person is arrested or taken to jail for the night until they sober up or until someone can come and pick them up. And uh, what experts were telling me is that it may be more appropriate for the first responder in that case to be someone who is trained in handling people who are struggling with mental health or struggling with addiction issues and who have the resources and the specific tools to be able to help that person get to a safe place, get into treatment, call a family member, do some of the things that police officers just don't have the ability or the access to do. But there is a question of, well, if people are so used to calling 911 in these instances, how does the police department and these social services uh, then interact? Where's the handoff going? How do we make this change so that the, the social service workers and social workers have the ability to be part of that intervention or maybe be the sole interveners, um, even though society at large is not used to that kind of system? Schools, school districts right. also have a lot of uh, contracts with police departments. Minneapolis and Portland, Oregon have terminated their relationships with local police departments. But right there, you know, when whenever there's a school shooting, a lot of times people say, hey, well, if a police officer is there, an armed police officer, uh, maybe they can be there to prevent something like that. Right. And that is uh, an argument that several people shot down with me saying, that hasn't proven to be effective at preventing school shootings and having an armed, uniformed police officer may be counterproductive in dealing with children who are in need or in distress or crisis, having problems at home, acting out, getting into fights, bringing weapons to school. There may be a better position for a counselor, adding, using money to add some counselors to the staff of schools, which are, the, you know, the, the ranks of counselors have been dramatically reduced due to budget cuts. Adding more teachers, adding people who are specialists uh, with different grades, different levels of 
different age groups um, and different types of populations to try to work with them in different ways and maybe not have interactions that could have adverse effects on a 14-year-old Black student in a school who maybe has a difficult run-in with a police, uh, with a school resource officer, and that could color how they view law enforcement going forward or how that police officer, school resource officer, treats students like that going forward as well. So I think it, it, it's a relationship issue, and the argument there is maybe we need to put those responsibilities in the hands of people who are trained to work with children in an academic setting. A lot of the effort is to keep police where they're needed most for serious crimes, homicides, sexual assaults, things like that. And uh, maybe you can create these other programs to help in these other areas. But one of the realities is, is that, you know, cities across the country are facing big budget deficits, especially right now as the coronavirus pandemic shut down economies throughout the country. And that's going to be the tough thing is finding the money for these other programs. Obviously, that's why people are saying let's take money from police departments. But this is the tricky part of it. Absolutely. And I think that budget cuts to these other social services and community programs are part of the reason that police have picked up so many of these responsibilities in the first place over the years. A lot of cities and mayors that I have talked to specifically have said, look, we're facing millions of dollars, sometimes tens, even uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of deficit over the next couple of years. And public spending on public safety, including police departments and firefighters, that's on the table, too. So there's not a lot of flexibility in moving money around. Of course, everything can be reallocated. There's a lot of power with city councils, with mayors who want to sit down and reimagine what uh, what the priorities are, but the pie to split up is going to be dramatically smaller over the next couple of years. Kim Hart, City's reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And amid the pandemic and protests against police brutality, there are still elections happening. And in Georgia, Tuesday was a mess. People were waiting in line over four hours to cast ballots. Some voting machines didn't work. There were provisional ballot shortages, and all this happened while they were trying to social distance. For more on the chaos in Georgia and why people are concerned for November, we'll speak to Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. So unfortunately, the problems in Georgia are not unique or new. They're not new for Georgia. I don't think I need to tell your listeners that Georgia has a fairly long and fraught history of protecting the voting rights of its citizens. So this is just merely another chapter in that book. But they're also not new. Every state so far that's really had to hold an election in the middle of this pandemic, that's had to hold a primary, has struggled mightily. I think Georgia is pretty an extreme example of that. We talked to some voters who waited upwards of six hours to cast wow. a vote in person. But this is just a problem we see with pandemic elections is that no one has really figured out how to do in-person voting safely and in a reasonable amount of time. And one of the issues with that is that they have closed a lot of polling places. So they're consolidating a lot of the sites. So there's going to be more people showing up to those sites. And there's not as many workers there, which could be a problem to help direct the flow. So basically everywhere has had to consolidate polling sites because think about your poll worker, right? When you go to vote, what you're probably picturing in your head is a little old lady or a nice retired old man who checks you in, who walks you through the process. Those are the people that are most susceptible to the pandemic, most susceptible to the virus. So those people have been dropping out. They're saying, I don't feel comfortable being a poll worker for good reason. The people, places are losing poll workers. They have to consolidate voting sites. And then once you're actually in the voting sites, they still try their best to keep the CDC social distancing guidelines in mind. So that means less voting machines. That means cleaning down the machines after every voter. So this just 
really exacerbates any already existing problems. And obviously, we haven't been able to get it together, as you mentioned, and everybody's thinking ahead towards November. Will we still be in this same mode with consolidated sites, uh, this, all this extra cleaning? There's been a lot of problems with mail-in ballots as well. And you know, we all know the president has said he doesn't want a lot of mail-in voting because there's going to be a lot of fraud even though there might not be evidence to suggest that. But these are all the issues that when a mess happens like this, let's say in Georgia, everybody right away starts thinking about November. So first off, there will be more mail-in balloting, regardless of what the president says. The president is wrong. There is no evidence of widespread fraud at all with mail-in balloting. Just think about the process that it would take to even get one vote fraudulently across and then try to multiply that over and over. It's just not really a realistic situation. There's no evidence of it happening either. But human behavior is shifting people to doing more mail-in balloting. I always go back to Wisconsin, which had its own problems. But Wisconsin functionally made no changes to its election laws. It did not even do what Georgia did. Georgia's Secretary of State sent every voter in the state an absentee ballot request form. Wisconsin did not do that. And it went from somewhere around the low single digits of people who actually vote by mail, usually, to in the 60% of people who voted by mail. That's just pure change in human behavior. So this is coming. This is going to happen. And it's just a big problem that part of this is just we have to be patient. We as the American citizens, the media has to be patient. It's going to take longer to count these absentee ballots. It just takes more time to count absentee ballots than it does to count votes in person. And then part of this is that election officials need to figure this out. We're running out of time. We don't have that much time to election day. It feels like a lifetime away. But when you actually have to prepare for the election, you have to buy supplies, get vendors in order, get your processes in order, get your new poll workers trained. We are quickly running out of time. And November is knocking on our door. Just back on those numbers. Georgia usually has about 40,000 mail-in voters. And as of Monday, they had 943,000 voters that had turned in an absentee ballot. So, I mean, that's a huge swell right there. And I'm sure a lot of states are going to be seeing some of that movement. And like you mentioned, just going beyond that to November, a lot more people are going to want to go that way. And think about this. These are all primaries. The people who vote in primaries generally, this is a pretty broad generalization, but generally are more regular voters. They vote more frequently. They're used to this process. They're used to voting. Some of them are used to waiting in line. Their voters were more in tune with the process. Now go to November and just supersize this. These are going to be infrequent voters who don't vote in primaries, who don't even vote every election. They maybe only vote for the president and they skip the midterms, they skip the primaries. This problem is only going to get worse. Election officials need to figure this out. And right now, a lot of them are coming up empty. Some states are well prepared. A state like Washington, a state like Oregon, that has a long history of mail-in balloting that conduct their election predominantly by mail already. They're going to be good. They're going to be fine. I'm not worried about Washington. I'm not worried about Oregon. I'm worried about Georgia. I'm worried about Michigan. I'm worried about New York, which has really no history of absentee voting. How do these states figure it out in five months? In Georgia, we were seeing a lot of blame being thrown around from Democrats to Republicans and vice versa. It's also a unique place, too, because for former Vice President Joe Biden, two of the people that might be on his VP shortlist are coming out of Georgia there. We have the Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and then Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor in 2018. So an interesting place right there for this to happen. As you mentioned, they have a history of problems there, but nonetheless. I think sometimes voting problems go under the radar, right? Because Georgia has a long history of voting problems. To put it generously, we shall call it voting problems. But up until relatively recently, Georgia has not been a state on the national radar. Think about the problems, you know, when there's problems in New York. New York is largely overlooked because New York is a safe Democratic seat for the Senate. It's always going to vote Democratic for the president, at least for the foreseeable future. These problems go unnoticed. But even if a voter is not in a swing state, these problems matter. Like Americans deserve the right to be able to cast a ballot pretty safely and not have to risk their health and or not be able to have to figure out this kind of convoluted mail process to do it. And election officials have largely come up empty.
Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.